Hello, fellow explorers. Welcome to Siren Soapbox. We're on a mission to explore, and this week we're exploring food, but not just any food. We challenged ourselves to find recipes that are at least 150 years old and try them out. So, Sara, would you like to get up on your soapbox and tell us about your experience with the challenge? I would so love to. So when we first started planning this episode, I was actually planning on making a crazy old bread recipe. I mean, this recipe was from like a thousand years ago. But as I was doing some more research, I found this site called How to Cook That, hosted by Anne Reardon. And Anne had a piece on 200-year-old confectionery recipes, and I was hooked. I enjoyed reading the recipes and the background of the recipes, but even more fun was the video that she posted that really delved into the history of the recipes and their original creator. So my coffee cream bonboons, which is what they were called back then, my recipe is taken from a recipe book called The Complete Confectioner, and it's written by Hannah Glass. Uh, Hannah was born in London in 1708, and she wrote her first cookbook called The Art of Cookery in 1747. It had 972 recipes in there, including the very first curry recipe that was written in English, and one of the first ice cream recipes, and she was also the first to use the term Yorkshire pudding in her recipe for them. Unfortunately, she ended up uh, having to sell all the rice to that cookbook. She had some financial difficulties. So even though it was reprinted multiple times with 20 editions and was the best-selling cookbook of the 18th century, she didn't get any money for it. She did write two other books. One, of, one was this called The Servant's Directory and the book that my recipe came from, The Complete Confectioner. Um, but neither of those were successful as her first. So here I was, over 260 years later, making one of Hannah's recipes. So I really loved how Anne showed the original recipe exactly as Hannah wrote it. Luckily, she added a modern rewrite, which is good because I don't think you can find a sugar loaf these days. But I did love seeing how the original recipe gave some insights into the lives of the women who made those dishes, cooking over fires, you know, high heat. Well, I, this close to the fire, that close to the fire. Uh, pounding sugar loaves into granulated sugar using a mortar and pestle. Uh, she said she didn't have the strength to do it herself, um, uh, Anne Re Reardon. Then she was also showing us how she had, well, for a different recipe, she had to boil and peel and then grate pounds of nuts just to make a nut powder. The funny thing was, was when she messed up that, that uh, version of the recipe, she said, I'm not doing that again. Here's some almond meal. Anyway, <laughs> to test the caramel, this is what they had to do. They, in the recipe, it said, dip your finger into the caramel and then dip it in cold water and see if it just comes off. Well, this is like lava hot caramel. So anyway, I didn't do that just by the way. So when it came to making my bonboons, we'll just call them what they were. They were caramels. Um, I got sugar from my pantry, already granulated, uh, bought heavy cream at Kroger and used my Starbucks Viet instant coffee packets. And that was all there was to it. The actual recipe is pretty simple, and I did have a lot of fun with it. You just make the coffee, boil it on the stovetop with the sugar, and added the heavy cream. Now, there's a but. It takes some patience to boil caramel long enough to its correct height or thickness. So I think I made a couple of mistakes looking back and doing some research since I made mine. I think I didn't let my coffee and sugar come get thick enough before I added the cream, so it just never really got very thick. But... That's all right. Instead of making uh, caramel bonbons, I have this delicious that you can't see because you aren't looking at me, but it's a delicious sort of 
caramel, coffee caramel sauce that is going to be great as just suggested on ice cream. Um, and I also, which is perfect because I do have a, a dairy, what is it? The Ninja Creamy. I'm going to use it in my Ninja Creamy to make uh, yummy ice cream. So um, I consider it a somewhat success, even if it didn't quite turn out like the recipe. But I really love this project. Jess, what did you think of making a 150-year-old recipe? Well, first, I think that you should totally also try in some hot chocolate. And let me know how that is, because that sounds delicious, Great especially because I'm really cold right now. So <laughs> some hot chocolate sounds wonderful. I actually really enjoyed this uh, challenge. I was a little nervous at first because, as I'm sure I have mentioned on previous episodes, I don't cook. Ben is the cook in our household. I told him when we got married, I will do the cleaning if you do the cooking. I I don't really enjoy it, and I'm not good at it, so um, I get very critical of myself when I try to cook. But Ben loves cooking, so I asked him if he would help me, and he was actually pretty excited about it. So that made me really have fun with this. Ben actually watches on YouTube a channel called Townsend's, where this guy um, dresses up and is in one of those like colonial Williamsburg-type experience villages where you can go and learn how to do blacksmithing and all that sort of thing. But he makes videos on um, different recipes from the 18th century. So I watched a few of those videos just to see if I could find one that seemed simple and also had ingredients that weren't things like suet and treacle, because those both sounded like a big no thanks from me. Um, But I found one that was a boiled pudding, and it seemed pretty simple. I also, at the same time, was watching Food Wishes, which is a different channel on um, YouTube, and he does all sorts of different videos but he had one that was a steamed pudding. And so I kind of did a combination of the two because Food Wishes called for a bunch of like candied ginger and candied cranberries and all sorts of different candied fruits. And I just wanted to keep it simple. So I combined it with the Townsend's video, which just called for currants, which I was surprised to be able to find at the grocery store. And um, also, the Townsend video called for boiling it by wrapping it in like cheesecloth and we didn't have cheesecloth. So I um, did the steaming method from food wishes and the simpler Townsend's recipe. And all in all, I would say it came out really interesting. (laughs) It was tasty, but it was not, um, not anything like anything I'd had before. It was basically a dense raisin bread is what it tasted like to me, but it said to combine it with different sauces and had, a maple syrup and butter sauce, a white or a sherry wine and sugar sauce, and a butter and sugar sauce. So I made three different sauces for it as well and tried them with all different, all the different sauces. And then I didn't want to keep three different sauces in my fridge. So I combined them all and and ended up having a more complicated sauce and ended up eating it for breakfast a couple of days. And it was pretty tasty. I am interested to see what the rest of you made and uh, hear how yours turned out. But um, my boiled pudding does not sound nearly as fun as bamboos. So (laughs) I'll have to see what the rest of you ended up making. Uh, TC, how did your recipe go? So I started off searching for a recipe that was 
per the assignment, at least 150 years old and easy to make with few ingredients. So I put all kinds of interesting things into my search field. And then I realized that somebody had posted on Reddit a family um, recipe that they had that was 150 years old. And they give a date, 18, uh, 1871 is when they say that this recipe was born. Um, it only calls for three ingredients and it's for a cookie. And I guess it would be considered a sugar cookie. I've never made sugar cookies, so I don't know. It had only three ingredients. However, I altered it just a little bit because my husband, um, he doesn't eat sugar, but we try not to eat sugar. And this, um, so we try to do low carb. This called for self-rising flour, which came out in 1851, I guess, as a result of this being posted on Reddit, everyone had this conversation about self-rising flour isn't that old, but apparently it is old enough. Self-rising flour, butter, and brown sugar are the three ingredients in these cookies. Well, I switched out the self-rising flour for almond flour, and then I had to to do some research on what is the difference between self-rising flour and regular flour. And apparently the difference is maybe a little bit of salt, but also baking powder. So I added some baking powder to my recipe. So my recipe actually had four ingredients. It had almond flour, baking powder, butter, and um, I used a stevia or stevia um, brown sugar replacement, brown sugar and molasses replacement. And you, you soften the butter, you put the three ingredients in a bowl, you're supposed to mix it all with only your hands, and then you let the dough sit for 20 minutes and chill. So I did that, or the, yeah, dough. And while the dough chilled, I used that 20 minutes to make myself some hot cocoa and discovered that the uh, brand of hot cocoa I was using is 100 years old. So that was fun. And it was a kind of a, a kickback packaging. It was like their old school packaging. And I added a little Godiva chocolate liqueur to that hot cocoa. And that is also 100 years old. I looked it up. I looked up how old all these things were. So it's really fun. Um, I love that I had to press the cookies with a fork and make that grid pattern. I've never done that, and that was the high point. It was all very delicious. I tried it when it was done, and I can't wait to make them for Dino. So I really enjoyed this challenge, even though I simplified it and altered it. Murph, yeah. what did you make? Well, I settled on three different recipes. So when we first got this challenge, I, the first thing I did was I headed over to the library. I use Libby, which is an app where you can borrow eBooks from your local library. You just have to have a library card. So shout out to Libby for helping me borrow library books. <laughs> and I found, I found a bunch of resources, but there were two that I sort of used for this challenge. The first is called Tasting History by Max Miller, and it's a cookbook. And I didn't get very far through that one, but I did make a recipe from it. And that recipe 
is called tiger nut cake. Tiger nuts are, um, I lost my train of thought. Tiger nuts, uh, sort of grow underground. They're tubers. So like a dandelion root, um, sort of what they are reminiscent of. And you could not really find them locally in a grocery store unless you go to some international market. Lucky for me, I live in Cincinnati, which is about 30 minutes from Jungle Gyms. And we, uh, Mark and I headed up there the other night. Of course, I told Mark that I was looking for tiger nuts and he was like, found them, Jungle Gyms. So we went on a little adventure and, uh, not only did they have tiger nuts, which sorry, you described in one of your recipe, your recipe, um, having to like ground or the author of the cookbook you used had to like ground nuts into her, her own flour. That's what they yeah. wanted me to do with these tiger nuts. And I have a picture of them. They look like these little, like shriveled up beans in a pod and you're supposed to like boil them and then pound them with a mallet to break them open and then get the nut from the inside, put it in a food processor and make your own flour. But jungle gyms had a pre-made tiger nut powder. I know I was like, thank goodness. (laughs) So Mark was doing some research about tiger nuts. I'm going off on a tangent a little bit because I didn't actually write a soapbox. I'm just hitting some topics. (laughs) (laughs) Mark did some research about tiger nuts and apparently they are, um, or they were used for like fertility purposes, like to increase, um, the male sperm count and things like that. This recipe also was found on the, uh, tomb of an, in an ancient Egyptian tomb. Um, I'll have to look up the name of the, the guy, but it was all written in hieroglyphics. So it it was the tomb oh. of Reckmeyer. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. R-E-K-H-M-I-R-E. The tomb of Reckmeyer. And it's written in hieroglyphics. Of course, it was translated into words by someone later. Um, but this cake, they're supposed to serve it in an upright position. So it looks like a cone like a vertical cone and I can't really see it, but it was drizzled in a date syrup on top. Just want you to look at the top of that cake real quick. (laughs) So vertical cone drizzled in syrup. Mark and I have been calling this the Egyptian cock cake for three days. This is exactly what it looks like. And I want to tell you that it's delicious. I can't really describe the taste. The texture is a little gritty, but it is a fantastic, like no bake cake. And uh, is Mark feeling very fertile? No, I hope not. Let's uh, <laughs> let's hope not, Jess. So that was the oldest recipe that I made. Um, no, no, actually, it wasn't. I made a Greek energy bar from 450 BC. That was made with toasted sesame seeds and almonds and honey. And then I made tirapita, which apparently is from the second century. And that is just like flaky, like phyllo dough filled with uh, eggs and feta cheese and pepper. It's so delicious. Anyway, I had a lot of fun with this, with this challenge, as you can tell. There was one last recipe that I didn't get around to making, but I did buy all the ingredients for, and it's called chocolatel. And it's from the year 900. 
So the Mayans, they, uh, it's a cocoa drink and cocoa beans were discovered by the Mayans. This drink was considered a health drink and it was made with uh, water, like spicy pepper and cocoa beans. So I have a hot red pepper and some dark chocolate and I'm making it with milk to make it a little more rich and delicious. But Mark and I are going to have some spicy hot chocolate later. So I'll report back on that. Yum. Yeah. So what was everybody's favorite part of this challenge? I think picking out the recipe, just watching all the different videos and also watching the Townsend's guy because he uses, he also uses like old timey cooking instruments. So he has, you know, like huge wooden spoons and like wooden bowls and his whisk is like twigs lashed together. And I'm just like, mm, thank God for wire whisks because no, thank you to that. Hmm. Yeah. It is really cool to see how they did things. Um, and that's the part that I enjoyed was watching the, watching the video that, that was posted with this recipe because she talked all about the history of, of, how they did things back then. And she even described how they made the sugar loaf with slowly dripping the molasses through and eventually you get sugar left behind. I don't remember all the details. And then you've got this solid sugar loaf that you can go out and buy. But then if you want to use some sugar, you have to take it and you have to pound it up. Just all that kind of stuff was just really interesting to see how things were done, you know, many, 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 many years ago. Although I think you might win, uh, Mer. I, I only went back a couple hundred years. Well, I didn't mean to go back that far, but I found this, this magazine. Um, the magazine was called the ultimate history cookbook. And that's where I found some of these really old recipes. I actually loved the magazine so much. Again, I borrowed it from Libby, but I loved it so much that I ordered a copy of it, but it's going to take like five weeks to get here. I think it's from somewhere in England. <laughs> My favorite part was trying to figure out how to take this recipe and make it match my current lifestyle goals. That's a fun challenge. Yeah. So I was telling one of my friends about it and she was like, is that ruining the integrity of the recipe? And I was like, yeah, it probably is, but it's okay. I mean, it's in the spirit of that recipe. I looked up the 150 year old recipe so I felt good about it, but that was my favorite part. Also, it was all in grams. So yeah. I had to convert everything to cups and then, uh, and then figure out how much, um, baking powder I needed to add to my almond flour and all that good stuff. I think it was cool that you were able to still make this old recipe, but make it something that you could actually eat. There's not much point in making something that we didn't, wasn't going to work for us for some reason. I am curious to make it following the exact recipe, which would be so easy to do. It was just really easy to make. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that I could putz around my kitchen doing whatever and not not be putting all of my effort and thought into a recipe. And so that was really relaxing to me. Um, but it would be interesting to try the original recipe and see how different they are. Well, I can definitely say that mine was not relaxing because I was stirring this darn caramel um, for probably about 40 minutes. And hmm. you know, they, she says, instead of sticking my finger in this lava hot uh, caramel to see if it was done, you take a little bit of it and on a spoon 
and you and you just drizzle it into a glass of cool water and once it's ready to the correct height or thickness or whatever it makes a little string of caramel in there instead of just oh. dissolving as soon as you put it in there so um, I think you're supposed to have one cup. You're supposed to look at your caramel and say, look, that looks like it might be done. You put your spoon in, you do that. It makes the nice string. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I dumped out that water and filled that glass up probably about 15 times. Kept trying it. No, not ready. Kept trying it. No, not ready. So peaceful, relaxing. No, stressful. <laughs> but at least it's yummy. It's very yummy. I can't wait to try it. Are you going to yeah. bring me some? Yeah, you've got it's it's not quite this big, but you've got your own little little what little sample <laughs> you're going to get. Can't wait. Have a have a spoon at the ready. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tracy, you you mentioned um, would modifying it change the what you say the integrity of it or the integrity. I think the beautiful thing about recipes is the, um, our ability to, to put our own spin on them and sort of give them our own flavor. Like we think about this because it's the first example that popped in my head, the national anthem, how many artists have recreated the national anthem and cooking is just like any other art form. I feel like you should be able to, you know, put your own, spin on maybe a base recipe that you found that was created or whatever years ago. I think that's fine. And I think it's a beautiful thing. It's also it's fun though. I mean, for me, it was more like some research and some, and a math problem, but, <laughs> but you still find it, found it fun. It was. Yeah. I really enjoyed that part. And there were a couple, um, what do you call them? Recipe makers, cookbook writers, Cooks, chefs, chefs, cooks, bakers. I don't know. There are a couple that I follow who specifically make low carb meals. And it's really interesting sometimes when they put out a new recipe, they'll talk about this works really well with almond flour, but not as well with coconut flour. I don't recommend using coconut flour. And I've just always thought that it's really interesting that they understand the ingredients and how they work how they, you know, how they thicken or whatever the, the texture that they can do that. Um, so it was just kind of fun to play around with that and try a different flour and, and learn the difference between self-rising flour and regular flour. I really enjoyed that part. Well, it's a talent and it's an art form, you know, not anyone can look at a recipe and say, Oh, that looks really good. I'm going to change this and that and the other, and I'm going to add this and take, you know, not everybody can do that. It's, it does take a talent. And like you said, and, a, 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 you know, a, a, a profound, that's kind of a dumb word, but a, a solid knowledge of the ingredients that you're working with and how they behave and how they react with each other. So it's uh, it's a talent and an art form for sure. It's I'm a surprised that with baking, because a lot of times with baking, especially you have to be pretty precise. So, mm -hmm. so um, so that's really cool that you were able to, to modify your recipe. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Baking is like a science also. If you don't get it right, think, you know, your things cannot rise or things can rise too much. Or if your oven is the wrong temperature, your cake will collapse in the middle. Just like weird things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was kind of um, fun because it was low stress. Like if these cookies didn't come out, 
it's not like I had searched high and low for the ingredients or invested hours and hours and days. I mean, I've seen people make recipes that take days to make. So it was just, it was really relaxing and fun. I enjoyed it. Good. Sourdough bread. That's something that is very difficult to make. Mm -hmm. So delicious though. Yeah. I actually (laughs) thought about starting a sour bread, a sourdough starter for this episode, but I didn't. (laughs) You would have had to start like four months ago. (laughs) Well, I mean, I could have started it and not used it, but I could have started it, but yeah, I have, but I didn't do that. So that's definitely, don't get that right. All of that work and all of that (laughs) time for nothing. I've heard that one's good for having like a friend and you just like ask them for some of their starter and like, you know, there's people that have a starter that came from somebody like four generations ago because they basically keep like adding to and taking from a starter. And that to me is like gross, gross, but I know sourdough bread is so delicious. So it's just like kind of cool at the same time. Yeah, I feel like the sourdough bread that I get at Kroger is probably not that uh, involved. Probably no. not. No, I'm sure they're using some some kind of yeast that gives it that sour flavor, taste, whatever. I mean, is there yeast in sourdough bread? I have no idea. I assume I so either. because it rises. And I think that yeast is used to rise things, but I'm not 100% certain about that, Tracy. I'm going to Google it. Maybe the very first like starter probably uses yeast, but I think like it's basically fermented, so it mm, yeah, keeps you're right, feeding itself, and that's why you have to like feed your starter or whatever. If you so, you have to like keep feeding it sugar or something like that. I think so. So it probably did start with some yeast, but now you just like keep feeding the colony. <laughs> you're right, <laughs> it makes it sound so gross. It says sourdough bread is made using a sourdough starter, which is a mixture of flour, water that contains wild yeast and bacteria. My niece made sourdough bread for Christmas and we all ate some of her. It was sourdough bread, right, Sarah? Oh, yeah. She made made? with wheat that she grew in her own backyard. Yeah. It was freaking amazing. Wow. Isn't that silly? Tracy, I'm sitting here thinking, your niece, who would that be? (laughs) (laughs) What nieces does she have? I mean, oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know them all. Yeah. No, that was really good. And that didn't come from a starter or anything because she just grew it from wheat from her backyard. I don't know. I mean, it came from some kind of starter, but I don't know how she made the starter. Yeah. We should have had her on. We should have. We should have. I would love to make my own bread sometime. Oh, I did make a focaccia one time. That was really easy. It was like some quick rising yeast and you just mix up some flour and water and some yeast and cover with a ton of freaking olive oil and you let it rise. And then you use your fingers to go in and like poke holes in it and cover it more olive oil and then you bake it and it makes this like delicious crispy crust with like a soft center mark's son griffin when i I made it for we had like a a, an italian dinner night at his house once and griffin ate like half the pan of focaccia Mm. (laughs) fresh baked bread is like 
Oh, that's so good. The whole thing. Might mm -hmm. make that tonight. TC, I'll be interested to see when you try your recipe again, if you can find um, self-rising flour or if you have to end up making your own, because that is something we have trouble finding here. Oh, Usually really? once a weekend, Ben and I will make um, his granny's biscuits and gravy, which I thought about just cheating and saying that's my 150 year old recipe because I mean, it's his granny's recipe uh, of bis Southern biscuits and gravy. But I was like, mm, I'll do something different. But yeah, most weekends we make that. Um, and self-rising flour is what we use for the biscuits. And it, mm. it is tricky to find here sometimes. So I've never looked for it. I'll have to check that out. I mean, I doubt that I'll make the actual recipe because maybe, but why? These but why? <laughs> so... Is self-rising flour, I don't know if you did this research today, TC, but does it just have like uh, baking soda and baking powder in it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I, Most of them have salt too. Salt. Yeah. yeah. When we've had to, when we haven't been able to find it and we wanted to make it, we just do extra because the biscuits already call for baking powder and then we just do extra baking powder and extra salt. Hmm. And it usually comes out okay I just feel like they're usually not as fluffy when we don't use that but but yeah the different flowers are interesting like you you would think just one flower would be the same as another flower but I know that when Mara ended up um being needing to go gluten-free my sister loves to bake and she had a hell of a time finding substitutes that would act the same mm -hmm. you know because a lot of them are like well, you can use this as a substitute, but you have to use like three quarters of the amount of all-purpose flour that you would use or double the amount of all-purpose flour. And Yeah, it's all very precise. And that's what this said. Um, almond flour isn't, um, it isn't, it doesn't absorb as much. So you have to watch the fatty ingredients when you're using almond flour instead of regular flour. I learned that through this process as well. Almond flour is probably fatty itself as well, I would assume. It probably would be. I mean, not. almonds have fat. Yeah. Although I have to say the um, gluten-free Bisquick mix works really well. It works uh, just as well as regular Bisquick mix. Because we make, for Thanksgiving, we make little um, sausage balls with Bisquick. And they have like sausage and cheese and rosemary in them. And uh, when Mara had to go gluten-free, we started making them with gluten-free Bisquick and it works very well. We make those too. That must be a Midwestern thing. Yeah, probably. <laughs> They're delicious though. Mm -hmm. Never heard of them. They're so easy too. Hmm. Yeah. They would not be very low carb with the Bisquick in them, TC. Mm -hmm. But maybe you could try them with, I don't know, almond flour. <laughs> So I found it interesting. I'm totally changing the subject. I found it interesting as I was reading through this one magazine, how um, I came across a recipe written by Richard II's um, chief cook in like 1390 and his instructions for making, it's, it looks like it's uh, some kind of stew or something. It says... It, the the it, I know this is English, but it's like not 
American English that I'm used to reading. So bear with me. Take good cow milk and do it in a pot. Take parcel, sage, yes up, something and other good herbs. Hew hem and do hem in the milk and see them. Take half roast it and smite hem on, I don't know, something. Salt it and color it with saffron and serve it forth. Like that's the whole recipe. And I know that I know people who would read that. And I mean, obviously, I don't know what the hell it says either. But more to the point that I was trying to make, a lot of recipes don't have very specific instructions (laughs) for completing them. Sorry, can you translate that for us? (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) So this is not totally related. I mean, this is related to what you said, but not exactly i'm reading for our um for our right in the margins challenge i'm currently reading the book sarah chose and the book is set in england and i guess written by an english person because in his description he uses words and describes things with words that i don't know and so, like, Sara is writing in the margin, don't you love his descriptions? Can't you hear it? Can't you just see that? And I'm like, no, I can't. I don't know what that word is. Have you A seen lot of it? stuff she translates, though. I did She'll be like, this means this. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to get that book. Yeah, even better is we started, uh, Bill and I started watching the show on, um, it's on uh, Amazon Prime. And uh, it's pretty hilarious. All creatures, great and small. Uh-huh. Oh. Way back in the, whenever it was that they were making that, like, uh, I can't remember, like, late 70s, early 80s or something is when they started filming that. And oh, really? talk, I'm just so grateful that they've got subtitles. You know, we don't have subtitles, but we always have, um, I guess, yeah, we always have subtitles. It's not, um, I was thinking dub. Closed caption. No. Close captioning. There you go. Thanks. Because for, for Bill, and it's I'm like, I'm so glad that we do that because even I have trouble understanding what they're saying with their accents. It's hilarious. Ben and I ended up having to do that with Peaky Blinders. Yeah. Because wow. they're speaking English, but man, those accents. An accent, but they do sometimes write in the accent, which is actually kind of fun because you try to pronounce it the way they're speaking it and writing it. But I have to, I didn't bring the book in with me, but there are words in there that they use that we don't use. And so the word is nothing I can connect to. It's not written with an accent. It's an actual noun and it means something to someone in England in 1937. It means nothing to me. But also when he describes like certain trees and plants, I I have no visual for what he's describing. So it's really interesting. Um, It is well-written enough that you still get lost. And what I mean is you're transported to what, to that place. Mm -hmm. You're not, I'm not sitting here in my home by the sea. I'm in England. And you can picture enough of it that you're still there. It doesn't, but it's, it's just interesting. So in one paragraph, I just started circling all the words that I had no idea what that word meant. And there's like four or five words circled in one paragraph. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. 
Well, what I'm taking away from this is you're having fun with a book. So that makes me happy. I am having fun with the book. I'm enjoying it way more than I thought I would. Good. I'm glad. Yeah, you are you are not looking forward to this book for some reason. Because it takes everyone a million years to finish it. Oh, you take a million yeah. years to finish. <laughs> Lesson learned. Sarah, Sarah won't pick, well, because we're going to have to do this one again because it's been so much fun. But we yeah, when we're done. Well, I think we need to. I think we need to pick another book and do it immediately. But, but, uh, I already, Sarah I already have my book. Sarah promises not to pick such a such a hefty book. I'm not oh, going to read wait. as fast because I haven't enjoyed only having one person's writing in my book. Are mm. you saying I cannot use this book, ladies, as yes. my next? No. What's wrong right? with you? Right in the margins book. For our listeners, tiny too. For our listeners at home, the book that Sarah just held up was like five thousand pages. What's wrong with you? A lot. Wait, don't tell us. Let's guess how many pages that book really is. Okay, I'm gonna guess four hundred and thirty-six pages. Okay, I'm gonna guess one thousand three hundred twenty-seven pages. Okay, nine hundred thirty-seven. Um. Just wins. Uh, the acknowledgement page is nine hundred and forty-seven. Wow, that's twice as many as you thought, TC. That's still no, though. You're you're still not allowed to pick that book. I don't mind the length. In fact, I like a long book because you get to know the characters. When the book ends, the characters are gone. I don't mind a long book. Um, I wasn't worried that it was taking people so long to read it because it was long. Right. I was worried that it was taking people so long to read it because they didn't feel, feel drawn to read it. Like when I got to a certain place in Murr's book, I couldn't put it down and I got grumpy if I got interrupted. That's what I was worried about. And, and this book so far, I'm on page 80 something. And there's, there isn't, really anything pulling you into the next chapter there's not like an overarching conflict or challenge or goal it's mm -hmm. it's like a series of mini shows it's like a sitcom in writing yeah the chapters are connected it's the same guy it's a story but you could skip three chapters and i think it'd be fine so like each chapter is like its own episode. That's like each each chapter is its own episode of Law and Order, where the crime happens, the suspect is named, tried, and convicted, all within sixty minutes. But yes, yes. Just like, just like Law and Order, about ten chapters later, those same characters show up, and something else happens with them. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. That does happen every once in a while, doesn't it? We talked about that when we were watching the show Suit, Suits. In Suits, each episode has its own kind of conflict and conflict resolution by the end of the episode, like most TV shows do. But there's also this overarching conflict that lasts typically the entire um, season. Series? Season. Yeah, season. Thank you. And there are these medium-sized conflicts that last like two or three episodes. And so that was one thing that I thought was done really well with the show Suits. It pulls you into the next episode because you're like, whoa, what's going to happen 
to that thing. But the book so far hasn't really done that. No. Hasn't really like, whoa, what's the next chapter is going to be a new mini story in his life. But it is good and it's really well written. But I still am I'm I'm not reading as fast because I want a book with like three people's writing in it. Yeah. All right. Deal, Jess. You don't have you didn't get any books with that? I've only gotten one person. Like I I've gotten it from directly from each of you guys. So I haven't had more than one person's writing. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. Well, you will get your book back with everybody's writing. I know. And I'm excited. I'm excited to look. Yeah. It it has been fun to read your book, Jess, because I think I'm the last person to have it. And you're right. It is fun to see what everyone else is thinking. Yeah. I was missing the red. I kept flipping and I'm like, where's the red? And I realized you haven't read this one yet. So yeah. maybe next time we'll have to do like, we'll have to do it a little differently. Rot- yeah. We'll do a scheduled rotation so that everyone gets one with one, one with two and one with three. That's a good idea. If we rotate around, but I've already started my book and I've already started writing in it in orange. It is a long book. Good. I feel like we switched episodes. I know. So totally I was did. just going to ask if you guys wanted to go back <laughs> to the recipe episode. <laughs> maybe we'll put all of that uh conversation on our patreon so if you're a patreon subscriber you can get some behind the scenes conversation about our upcoming book club episode how about that does that work for everybody yes and if you're listening for that episode i should keep it in because it happened naturally. You were you were talking about the that's language true. in an old recipe that was English, and that's how it all started. It was okay. A segue. So segue yeah. back. Can we talk about how difficult it is when when you don't have exact instructions to follow in a recipe? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so hot oven. Put it in a hot oven. What does that mean? So my mom. And my grandmother were dump cooks and that's what I consider myself. So I have some things that I make, like I make this hamburger soup that I probably never make the same way every time, but I know the kind of the basic things that I throw in it and I just try to eyeball it and I try to make it pretty similarly each time and it's in the ballpark and it's always pretty good, but I don't know what the measurements are for that soup. My recipe the, the recipe that I made, it called for um, about a pint of coffee with water, and then you set it on the fire and boil it to a high degree. Oh, right. A high degree. Oh, it's okay. very specific. All right, then. Sure. <laughs> All right, then. My, but then it, it, my but mother-in-law oh, makes I'm this, never, like, never going to hear amazing. about your mother-in-law ever. I know, but she's so awesome. She makes this amazing potato soup and it's just like, it's one of my favorite things ever. And I've tried to ask her for the recipe once and she was just like, oh, you do like a pot of potatoes and then you put in some carrots and you put in some flour and you, and I'm just like, okay, so then how hot do you cook it? She's like, oh, like, you know low for this long and then you know medium high for this long and until it's done and I'm just like see you what say is, that what to does me. that mean you say that to me and I'm like oh okay I got that I can make I can make potato soup with that much information <laughs> 
well, then you can make me some potato soup next time I see you. <laughs> but the, you're right. That doesn't work for every person. I remember yeah. a woman that I used to work with, her mother had a recipe for homemade chocolate pudding and vanilla pudding. So Nancy gave me these recipes, but it was like a heaping spoonful of like, what, what size spoonful? She's like, I don't know. I just gotta <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> That's how mom made pudding. And I'm like, how oh, fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I would make this pudding and it would turn out different every time too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I have a quick little game that I came up with while I was looking through these, this magazine that I ordered. I decided that it would be fun to maybe test your knowledge about things like food and cooking utensils and which, which one is the oldest. Yeah, I fail right now. I'm just going to say I fail. So I'm going to give you two items. Wait, first of all, does anybody object to playing this game? Okay. I'm going to give you the rules are simple. Two items, two things, and you're going to tell me which one is the oldest. You are going to keep your own scores. And if you lose, Sarah, what do they say? Uh, It's your own fault. That's right. All right. The Dutch oven and the coffee mill. Which one is the oldest? So the Dutch oven is like a cast iron pot with a tight fitting lid that you can hang over a fire. And the coffee mill is something used to grind grind coffee beans so that you can make a pot of coffee in case you were wondering. Are we going in turns? I mean, whoever's ready. I'm going to guess coffee mill. I'm too. I think the coffee mill. Hey, you guys are all right. The coffee mill, the Dutch oven was invented in 1707 and the coffee mill was invented in 1657. It was invented by Nicholas Brooks and he sold it for about two pounds, which would be about 200 pounds today. Um, It was, you are very fancy if you could have a coffee mill in your home. So that was in 1657. By the early 1800s, there was one manufacturer in uh, Lancashire who was producing around 90,000 coffee mills per year for household use. So there you go. Pronounce that location. You ready? Lancashire. <laughs> Lancashire. Go, Lan- Sarah, pronounce it. It's Lancashire. 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 Thank you. So one time I was hosting a trivia night for, I worked in the legal department at the time, the legal department for a pretty large bank. And I was hosting a trivia night with our legal department and one of our outside counsel at the outside counsel's um, office. And I pronounced, I cannot remember the word, but I pronounced a the name of a foreign country incorrectly. And one of my managers from across the room yelled the correct, correct pronunciation. And I was like, thank you, Gwen. And I said it correctly and moved on and just laughed because what else are you going to do? <laughs> And now I just uh, mispronounced Lancashire in front of a million people. So there you go. A million of those things that is regionally pronounced differently. Mm. I don't know that it is necessarily pronounced wrong. Gotcha. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, Tracy. That makes me feel better. And not that I felt bad. Anyway, 
Which one is oldest? The patent on tin sealable containers or canning or the rotary mixer? Which one is oldest? I have, I'm going to guess the mixer. Yeah. So you, we're talking, which is older, the patent or the mixer? Yeah, the patent on either one. It's oh. the, These are both patents. On the tin sealable containers used for canning or the rotary mixer. I'm going to go with the tin. Probably wrong, but. I think the, ro the rotary mixer. All right. Well, we had one winner in this round. And the patent for the tin sealable containers was obtained in 1810 by Peter Durand. However, it had been, it had, it was in the works of being developed for many years prior to that by a guy named Nicholas Appert. And he actually published a book in 1811. So just one year after our buddy Peter um, obtained the patent, he wrote a book or published a book called The Art of Preserving way back in 1811. So there you go. The rotary mixer was, um, the patent for that was obtained in 1856 by a guy named Ralph Collier. And his wording on his patent application was, vertically revolving stirring blades made of metal wire attached to a central staff, which is exactly what a hand mixer is. Pretty accurate. Yeah, that, <laughs> I love that central staff. <laughs> Okay, let's see. How about the microwave oven or Oysters Rockefeller? Which one is oldest? I realize that I jumped categories. You're welcome. I'm going Oysters Rockefeller. I don't know what that is. Oh, you don't? That's what I'm that's what I'm going with. All right. I like it. I like it. Just go for it. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is maybe a trick question so like I should say microwave but I don't know anything about oysters and I love that the microwave was invented because it's so wonderful I feel like oysters Rockefeller I, it, is, it is kind of a trick like like didn't is it because ro oysters Rockefeller is the way they prepare them so did somebody not just was that like a more recent sort of discovery on how to prepare them I don't know this one's kind of tricky. Well, the only trick to this question was I was trying to find two things that were similarly aged. The oldest of the two are the Oysters Rockefeller. You guys are all correct. The microwave oven was invented or made available in 1945. But Oysters Rockefeller were served as early as the 1920s here in the United States of America. So Back in the 1920s, for those of you who don't know, I needed a reminder of this. That was when we had prohibition on alcohol. So instead of like, yes, Tracy. No, you finish your story, then I'll talk about prohibition. Okay. <laughs> so here in the United States of America, in the 1920s, there was a prohibition on alcohol. And, you know, the idea was to prevent people from drinking the devil's juice. <laughs> but instead, what it did was it just made people like go underground and start drinking in these little places that they called speakeasies. And in so in a speakeasy, you could get alcohol, but it was kind of like whatever alcohol they could get their hands on. So 
whatever. And, but the same went for like the little finger foods that they served inside of these speakeasies. Cause you needed something to soak up the alcohol. Am I right? So oysters Rockefeller became a, a staple in some of these speakeasies that were near places where they had easy access to like shellfish. So it was really born out of a necessity to keep people from getting too drunk illegally in speakeasies in the 1920s. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Do oysters really soak up that much alcohol? Well, so the protein in food, I, I'm not a doctor oh. or a scientist, but the protein, I think, is what I've absorbs the alcohol. And oysters yeah. would be pretty high in protein content, I would think. Yeah, I've heard that. So when we were recently in the Cincinnati area, we went to a... Um, a place where they make alcohol that's distillery we went to a distillery and it used to be a speakeasy during prohibition and this really wonderful tour guide his name's jeff cole he um he taught us all this interesting stuff about how about newport and cincinnati's role in prohibition and it was really very interesting and then he told us that there was a show called Boardwalk Empire. And I found that show on Amazon Prime. And it took me four episodes at least to get into it. But now we really like it. And it's all about prohibition. It's really fascinating. Hmm. I just wrote that down. So Mark and I can maybe check that out. Yeah, it's a HBO show, but you can watch it on Amazon Prime. Interestingly, first of all, I'm thinking, I guess that would be your nephew. It's really strange to think of things in that in those terms. But anyway. My um, niece's brother. <laughs> so, um, it's pensive, the pensive distillery. And um, what was I going to say about it? I was going to say something really cool about it. So, but never mind. We'll have to move on. I forgot what. What do they distill? They make bourbon. They're here in northern. I say here, but I know that not everyone is here. But they're in northern Kentucky, correct? Like Covington, Newport. Uh, it, Newport. Newport. Gotcha. But there's a, a new book being written um, about the Bourbon Trail and Pensive Distillery uh, features in the new book that's being written and. Oh. Um, a certain Jeff Cole is, there's a picture of him opening up the door to the speakeasy. In cool. I have, I have a similar picture. I'll send it in our other chat. Um, I was going to say something. <laughs> it's catching. <laughs> Can you guys hear my dog in the background? Okay. Sorry. Okay, good. What was I going to say? Do, 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 do. Oh, perhaps it'll come back to me. I don't know. Oh, I know what I was going to say. In Boardwalk Empire, Cincinnati is mentioned for the first time on season two, episode one. And that's when we meet George Remus for the first time. George Remus, who I talked about in our uh, that Friday the 13th episode about a year ago. Oh, I don't remember that. What did you talk about George Remus for? So George Remus is famous here in Cincinnati for murdering his wife. Yes. Here in Eden yeah. Park. 
and on the for the 13 cursed objects episode about a year ago for January Friday, January 13th, Mark and I went up to Eden Park and took some pictures around the gazebo where supposedly um, George Remus's dead wife haunts because that's where he murdered her. Well, the, George Remus, they talk about George Remus in the tour of this distillery. He was involved. Yeah, and you can still get his bourbon. I think that it's distributed, though, um, and from a place in uh, Lawrenceburg, Indiana now. Huh. So it's still pretty close. Hmm. All right, you guys ready for another question? Yes. Sure. Okay. Which is oldest? The fork used at the table for eating, the table fork, or a book of manners written by poet John Lindgate. If you know anything about poetry, you're going to know which one's the oldest, probably. I don't know if I'm going to guess the fork. I just want to know if it's not a table fork. Is it like a floor fork? <laughs> like a pitchfork? Well, the, the reason a, I specified. A fork in a road. Well, the reason I specified is because forks were used prior to this, but just not for eating. They were used more as a tool for other things, not for eating. I'm going to go the book of poems only because after what you said, it made me think that perhaps one of his poems was about a fork. And so I'm going to go with the book of poems. Sorry, did you guess yet? I did. I say the table fork. So the table fork is the oldest between the two. Um, so forks have been around for a long, long time, but in the 11th century, um, it, allegedly, there was a noblewoman who attended a dinner for some dignitaries in the Republic of Venice, and she pulled out this two-pronged fork that she was going to use during the meal, and some members of the clergy were just horrified because they could not believe that someone would use something other than the utensils that God himself gave us to eat our fingers. So that was the 11th century. The, there, it, there was a uh, book of manners. It was a book of etiquette that was written by poet John Lindgate. It was given to highborn children in, in the 15th century. So, you know, 400 years after the table fork was introduced. And this book was sort of a guide for noble children on how to behave should they ever find themselves at a dinner party. Would you guys like to hear a quote from this book? Why? Yeah. Nah, let's not do that. Let's <laughs> talk about something else. <laughs> so Lind Lydgate, sorry, not Lindgate, Lydgate tells, tells these, these noblemen to Quote, have clean nails, don't leave greasy finger marks on the cloth, don't drink from a shared cup with your mouth full, nor slurp your soup noisily, don't pick your teeth with your knife, blow on your food, which you may be sharing, nor wipe your lips on the tablecloth, clean your spoon properly on your napkin, don't crumble bread into a shared bowl in case your hands are sweaty, don't gnaw bones nor tear meat with your teeth, scratching, spitting, belching, and farting are not acceptable behavior either. Well, I agree with most of those rules. I figured there'd be some that I really didn't agree with, but I don't I want know. people touching their bread with greasy, sweaty hands. Sweaty hands. I know. I feel like it was, uh, 
if you can't tear your meat, then you can't eat like chicken wings. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good that's point. all about tearing, tearing the meat. Yeah. All right. So that leads me into maybe our last question of the night. We are running low on time. I feel like, um, although I do have a are you, bunch are you more saying questions. we're boring? No, You're I'm not we're... saying that. I'm worried we're going to lose Jess. I have a ton more questions for you guys, actually. Um, all right. So let's, let's get to this one. Which would you be most likely to find at a feast in England um, during like medieval times? Would you be more likely to find freshly carved slice of deer or a hearty bone-in pork chop? Pork chop. Pork chop. I think deer were new world foods. All right, I'll go pork chop. I'll follow <laughs> along. So I'm sorry. I thought that I had some extra knowledge for you guys about this one. The answer, my friends, is sorry. You would be most likely to find a freshly carved slice of deer than a bone in pork chop. No this, way. this is what I, this is what the, the magazine, um, the ultimate history cookbook has to say about the matter to serve any meat on the bone was the worst insult. Only the dogs were given the bones. Huh? That's why you didn't tear your meat. There was no mm -hmm. bone. Yep. So they wouldn't be eating some chicken wings, which it's just sad for them because chicken wings are delicious. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was a very prestigious um, job, apparently, to to be the carver for the king. You had to you had to know exactly how to. They have all these words. You had to know how to correctly break a deer, lift a swan, frouche a chicken. Is that legal? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> tame dirty. a crab. Tame a crab and deal with every other meat, fish, or fowl, each in its own particular way. Huh. Does that mean you wouldn't be given like crab legs and the little things? No. Because it would already be pre-picked? No. In fact, they go on to say that had you been so bold as to serve the king meat on a bone, you would likely be um, sent off for execution. What an insult. Hmm. Better not hmm. miss any of those little fish bones. <laughs> I don't know if you guys can tell, but I had a lot of fun researching this episode. <laughs> I'm glad we pushed it to tonight so you could prepare your game. Or... Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Okay. Here's another one. The refrigerator or nigiri zushi. So that is... Um, if you're a sushi fan, you probably already know what this is, but it's rice mixed with white oh, vinegar. Is. Oh, do you want to tell us? No, maybe I don't know what it is. You, you know, I, the, the vinegar part maybe threw you, but it's, it's white rice mixed with some vinegar and then topped with fresh raw fish. So you, you probably knew that. That's what you're going to say. I say the fridge is older. I'm going to say sushi. I feel like sushi has been around for a while. Marissa oh, throwing us for a loop all night. I mean, the refrigerator was around before electricity put those big blocks of ice in there. Mm -hmm. That's why, like, I don't know if any of your parents or grandparents ever called it an ice box, mm -hmm. but mine did. That's um, actually what they call it here. It's funny. 
Hmm. I'm going to go with the uh, refrigerator because that seems like a trick question. (laughs) Okay. So the oldest of those two is the sushi. Hmm. And I don't have a whole lot of background for you other than to say it's the sushi. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 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 Here's another one. Tamales or pierogi? Pierogi. Does everybody know what these two things are? Yeah, I think it's pierogi. Although I don't know, pierogies, they're more like a European thing. Yeah, they're like Polish. So I think maybe the pierogi. Um, What did you guess, Jess? I said pierogi. I'm going tamale. Uh, So do we have two pierogies and one tamale? The answer is the tamale. Which oh, good job. came, yeah, the, the tamale came about somewhere around 8,000 BCE. That's before Christ event. Um, it was developed in the Mesoamerican region. It was something that was enjoyed by Olmecs, Toltecs, Maya, and the Aztecs, which are, they're all, those are all indigenous uh, civilizations who developed various parts of the Americas. They loved tamales as early as 8,000 BCE. They were quite portable. So they were really good for armies to keep with them while they traveled. So a tamale is like a cornmeal wrapped around some kind of filling, either like meat or fish or vegetables. And then it's all sort of wrapped in a corn husk and then steamed to cook it. Tamales are delicious. The pierogi, on the other hand, that came about in the 13th century. Hmm. So many years later, um, it's the national dish of Poland. And the first recipe recorded for the pierogi was in 1682 in a book called the Compendium Fercalorum, Fercalorum, Compendium Fercalorum by Fercalorum, you exactly. And the guy She's doing a doing a curse with a wand. <laughs> yeah, by a by a person named Stani Staniwaf Chernetsky. There you go. I did look up how to pronounce that name. It's not the Fercalorum. No. Um, I like how I how I muted my time right after I coughed. Yeah, thanks for that, TC. We really appreciate it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, so I literally could go on all night with these questions, but we have been at this for over an hour. Maybe it's time to wrap it up. Maybe we'll continue the conversation on Patreon, but you don't know if you're not a subscriber. So go over there and check us out and listen to all the other extra content we have, including our most recent video of TC teaching us how to fold an origami sailboat. There you go. Ladies, I had the best time tonight. Thank you so much. I've missed you all so much. It's been a long break and we're on break again next week, but then we get to come back and talk about juggling. So that's exciting. (laughs) Perfect. I feel like we're missing next Monday because is it somebody's birthday? It is somebody's birthday, but it's also a holiday and I'll be out of town, but it's mostly because it's Jess's birthday. Yay. Jess. How young are you going to be? Are you allowed to, are you, are we allowed to share that? I personally don't mind sharing my age with the whole world. 
four zero. Yeah, girl. Welcome to the four. baby. The She's big four zero. <laughs> She's our baby siren. <laughs> well, we can't wait to wish you happy birthday, Jess. I will miss you guys, though. We will miss you. I'm sure we'll check in with you, of course. But I hope you all have so much fun on your long weekend Thank from work. You. We're going to swim with manatees, me and my family. So, Oh, if you can legally boop one for me. If, if I, if one comes to me to be booped, I'll allow it. How about that? Yes. <laughs> well, thank you for spending your time with us tonight, Sirens. And thank you for spending your time with us, fellow explorers. If you need even more of the Sirens, please check out our website, sirensoapbox.com. In March, we're going to have our next movie club coming up and you can vote on that movie now. Go over to our website to check that out. And until next time, dive in. Stay curious and be happy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Siren Soapbox. And a special thank you to C-Strings for providing our music. Snag their latest EP from iTunes today. Follow the Sirens on all the social medias. And don't forget to tell your friends about us. Like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll catch you next time on another episode of Siren Soapbox.